it's a risk. I'll tell you that because it doesn't always work out. So you got to be ready to pivot and you got to decide. I used to always joke, I don't want to be the brand manager of Tide because that sort of path is tried and true. I wanted to work more on things that people hadn't figured out yet. That's just my personality. And so as those opportunities arose, I'm willing to take a chance and the job's more fun anyway. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PG Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. Roman and I both got our start at PG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Charlie Chappell, head of integrated media and comms planning at the Hershey Company. Drew, this was a really good conversation about identifying what's important to you at work. Yeah, it was a lot of great insight from Charlie from a number of different past experiences. So here's a, a quick bio. Charlie Chappell is head of media and communications planning at the Hershey Company, where he is leading Hershey's transformation towards a data-driven, people-based approach to media. In this role, he works across some of my favorite brands like Reese's, Hershey's, Kit Kat, Icebreakers, Twizzlers, and many more. Mr. Chappell brings a decidedly marketing perspective to media after spending 12 years at Procter & Gamble, touching iconic brands like Pantene, Herbal Essences, Old Spice, Gillette, Secret, Safeway, and Camway. He's worked across 25 countries with a particular focus on the US, China, Russia, Egypt, and Pakistan, as well as covering Central and Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Charlie received his MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern and also studied chemical engineering at Purdue University. He lives just outside of Hershey, Pennsylvania with his wife and four kids. You know, I loved hearing about how he captures what he's learned along the way. And (laughs) I'm not going to lie, Drew, that story about his daughter is amazing. Yeah, he has some fantastic stories. And the story with his daughter, I think, is so great because it, it talks about how he strives to be an authentic leader, someone who actually understands what his people on his team are going through. So I don't know, how, how is working from home going for you, Roman? Because that's one of the things we touched on. Yeah, you know, similar to Charlie, our daughter has taken over our home office. She has been actually known to come up to my podcasting mic in the afternoon or the evening and talk into it. She literally taps on it. And she's like, hello, Mr. Drew. Hello, Miss Sharon. And sadly, though, uh, she hasn't started her own podcast and she has not trained any of her stuffed animals to paint. Whoa. I mean, don't, don't, don't give away Charlie's story, but I think you are right about the the work from home situation and, and kind of co-opting spaces and dealing with that. And that's one of the things I was thinking about recently is, you know, my, my wife is actually the best coworker I've ever had. Only co-worker. You have to say that. You, yeah, you have, have to say to. that because you're nearly married. But I, well, I do. It's the only coworker that I've kissed, I think. But it is weird because like, if you think about working in the, the workplace, you know, if someone kind of annoys you, your coworker during the day, you go home and vent about it to your significant other. And now it's like, the person, if they're annoying you, who you're co-working with is also the person you're in a relationship with or their children or whatever. So it is a, a, a new dynamic to have to to deal with. And, and I'm sure the same thing for you and your daughter. 
Well, you know, I don't know if you watch Stephen Colbert, but, you know, he's producing everything at home right now. And he's co-opted his wife and his kid as his, like, production assistants on the show. And oftentimes, because his only audience is them. And so, you can, like, hear the laughter of his wife and kid during his monologue. Yeah. It, I mean, there's a lot that's changing because of all of this. And my wife also gets to to be the person listening in on some of the stories of of these podcast guests. And and that's one of the things that I loved about Charlie's interview was the stories that he shared. It wasn't just like, you know, the the resume talking through. It was great stories. Like the story about how Hershey's helped recruit his entire family with tickets to a theme park when they're looking at, do they make the, the move to Hershey's, Pennsylvania? Yeah, it's kind of an unfair competitive advantage that Hershey's has, you know, to give chocolates and roller coasters to kids of their recruits. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. All you folks who've worked in Cincinnati, Dividend Day was great, but it's not the same. But, you know, Graders does continue to like tug me back to Cincinnati every few years. So, I'll yeah. give it that. Well, and I'm, I am currently in Cincinnati visiting family right now, and I had Graders last night. And that's something that, you know, Charlie also speaks about. He, he spent time in Cincinnati. He says actually where he lives in Hershey's is kind of like the blue ash of Cincinnati. That's what it is there. And that's a specific that only our Cincinnati listeners will listen to, but something that everyone will appreciate whether you worked at PNG or not, whether you spend time in Cincinnati or not, is the insights and the stories that Charlie shares. So we're going to dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Charlie Chapel. Welcome to the podcast, Charlie. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here as well. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. So I'm excited to be chatting with you about your professional story, some of which people may know. So you earned a BS in chemical engineering from Purdue University and then later an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern before starting your career at Procter & Gamble as an ABM for Pantene and Herbal Essences. Then you went on to some brand manager roles for Global Herbal Essences, Old Spice, Gillette, and more. You spent some time as an associate marketing director for e-commerce. And then you moved over to Hershey's as the global brand excellent leader and now as head of integrated media and comms. And so it's quite an impressive career. My first question for you is growing up in Newburgh, Indiana, was this kind of the career projection that you imagined you would have? Not even close. I mean, I grew up in a you know middle-class household. Neither one of my parents went to college. So the first goal was just to get a college degree and all four of my brothers and sisters and I did that. It was interesting when I was pursuing chemical engineering, I was like, I knew I wanted to work on things that my parents could understand. I didn't want to go work for a chemical company and I don't understand what you do. So that's how I got into CPG actually with Kimberly Clark. And it was there I discovered marketing, even though I was there in an R&D capacity. And so that's why I pursued the marketing path and went and got the MBA like a lot of people did. Ah, so yeah. So I was curious about that, which I want to come back to in just a moment. But even kind of earlier that growing up, parents not with a, a college degree, what did 10-year-old Charlie want to be? What was the initial kind of, this is what I want to do? Oh, gosh. Before that, I remember really little wanting to be like a fireman. I think a lot of people had those kind of paths, somewhat dreams of maybe sports, but that went away kind of quickly when it's, you know, it's like I knew I wasn't going to be good enough to go do that. I was like, really? Okay, let's get into the best college that I can and see where that takes me. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I also wanted to be a soccer player, but yeah. I was not good enough <laughs> to do that. But why chemical engineering? Were you a kid who would mess around with different things and do science experiments at home? Was it just, oh, this was what I, you randomly walked into the wrong classroom? How did you go to... <laughs> chemical engineering. 
Yeah. I mean, typical engineering path, I was good at math and science. And particularly, I like chemistry the most, partially because chemistry is kind of abstract. You don't actually see what's happening from that standpoint. And so when you do the chemical reaction, you have to understand what's happening sort of at that atomic level. You see the impact of it. And so that always interested me. And so when I decided to pursue engineering, there's a lot of engineering paths you can go down, but chemical was the one that was most interested to me. And even better, that was a path to get into product development and packaged goods. So kind of going down that whole path sort of fit my interest from that standpoint. Yeah, I think as engineers, can I, my, my degree is in computer science. We have kind of that similar kind of focus or, or nature. And so you mentioned that you wanted to go somewhere that your, your parents would actually understand. So rather than the something super complex and all that, CPG. And then what was it about marketing, though, that you, you fell in love with so much? So you're like, I'm going to go and get my MBA and kind of shift focus. Yeah, I think there was two things. One, it really started to tap in more to the creative side of my personality. So I'd studied classical piano for like 10 years, could have gone the path of a piano performance major, but chose not to. So I really wanted to scratch that creative itch. But even more importantly, though, I could see that they were the ones who were running the business And I had sort of the business interested well, like how do we actually make money from that aspect of it? So that's what, once I started to work with marketers and met them, I'm like, that's the job I want. (laughs) So (laughs) sort of began on the path to say, okay, how do I get there? And so was it a kind of a complete shift or were there things that you learned as an engineer or even specific to chemical engineering that helped you in that role, either a way of thinking or that kind of thing? Or was it like, well, those years that I spent at Purdue are now like, I'm not going to leverage any of that. Instead, I have to start from scratch. I'd say it really helped on the analytical side and the problem solving side of things that you have to do when you're a part of marketing. And that also really fit in well in marketing at PNG from that standpoint. I still used a lot of my understanding of chemical engineering because even as a marketer, I would have to work with the product developers or claim substantiation and things like that. And I actually saying, no, I understand the science behind this as well. So that helped to just sort of add a little bit deeper and help to find solutions when that was needed. Yeah. I think that's helpful to hear because I think sometimes for people who are thinking about even going and getting their MBA a little bit later or switching into a different role or going from, say, product development into marketing or HR or whatever, there's sometimes that fear of, was this entire past kind of like, oh no, I'm starting over. But no, it sounds like you you can leverage what you've learned and your thought process and everything into the new roles that you've taken. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even still today, I'm sort of, I gravitate to roles that sort of need fixing or transformation. And that's the very sort of scientific approach of saying, diagnosing the problem, what are the options, evaluating the options all come to, even to this day, I still use it. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. And so thinking back to that first job as an ABM at PNG, right, you've made this big shift, go to MBA and everything. Was in that ABM role kind of what you were expecting? Was it what you hoped for? Was it better, worse? Kind of how was that first kind of role that you started in? I mean, honestly, looking back, I didn't really like being an ABM. (laughs) I'm completely (laughs) honest. I don't think most people did. You're at the bottom of the totem pole. You're doing all this kind of work. I still remember the day of the one page memos and getting it revised seven, eight or nine or 10 or 20 (laughs) times and everything in relation to that. But it really built a solid foundation for where I am today. I tell everybody, I'm like, I had to dig in and pull all my own IRI or Nielsen data, whatever we were using at the time 
And while I don't do that anymore, that taught me how to today ask smarter questions as a result of that experience. So it's one of those things I was glad I went through it, but I wouldn't want to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is, I think, a great way to look at certain type of roles that we have. You may not always be in a role that you absolutely love in that moment, but can make it better. And and I think leaders are the same way sometimes. I had a manager at P&G who, I'll be perfectly honest, I did not like working for at the time because he always pulled so much out of me. He made me a lot better than I was and pushed me outside of my comfort zone. And it's like, looking back, I'm so happy I had him. But at the time I was like, ah, this is annoying. Why can't you let me just coast? So much better to have that. So you do the ABM role and then some brand management roles, and then you move into digital and e-commerce. And was that kind of an intentional move on your part back in 2010? Or was it kind of just this was the the new thing that needed problem solving? What was that kind of went into that decision? Yeah, it was a career pivot at the time. Because before that, I had started to pursue emerging markets were really big in the mid 2000s. And I had an interest in that space, I'd moved over to Geneva and worked in emerging markets and was sort of coming back to be an emerging market expert. And then the 2008 economic crisis hit. And nobody talked about brick countries anymore. That kind of went away. So I had to make a pivot. And digital was starting to become, starting to really go from just something that was interesting and cool to actually affecting the business. And so I was like, this is something new. Nobody else has figured this out. So I'm going to jump in and take a shot at this and see if I can make a career and a name for myself in this particular area. I like that as kind of as a focus as exploring an emerging market of no one else has figured it out yet, kind of what one, you can create more impact in a way. And two, if you mess something up, people don't know because they don't know what the standard is to compare it to. Yeah, it is a risk. I'll tell you that because it doesn't always work out. So you got to be ready to pivot and you got to decide. I mean, I used to always joke, I was like, I really, honestly, I'm not going to say this while I'm at P&G, but I don't want to be the brand manager of Tide because that sort of path is tried and true. I wanted to work more on things that people hadn't figured out yet. That's just my personality. And so as those opportunities arose, I'm like, okay, I'm willing to take a chance. And I think the job's more fun anyway. Very nice. And so you spend some time doing a little bit of that at PNG, And then in 2012, you made the move to Hershey's. And so some of our listeners are maybe in a similar path of maybe making a decision on transitioning to a different role or even to a different company. So I'm curious what went into the decision of going from PNG and Cincinnati or kind of where you're located to Hershey, Pennsylvania and to Hershey's the company. Yeah. So a couple things, there was both personal and professional. I'd say on the professional at the time, I'd been at PNG for about 12 years. To be very honest, in 2012, the company wasn't doing well. People weren't getting in promoted. The stock price was underwater. It's like, is there an opportunity for here to me to really grow my career? Because a lot of things were just kind of slowing down. And so that got me starting to look outside. And at first, honestly, when I got the call from the headhunter at Hershey, I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. This is a backward company. They're only in the US. And the headhunter said, just take a little look. And Hershey was actually doing really, really well at the time from a business standpoint. And they were bringing me in because of my global experience. So I thought it's worth a shot. And so I went and talked to my wife. We actually have four kids. And so, and my oldest at the time was in fourth grade. And so we're like, well, if we're ever going to make a move, now is the time to do it. So let's go check this out. Let's check out this place. This is a place where we'd want to live, someplace where we think we'd want to actually settle for a while. Because we moved around a little bit, even with PNG, Cincinnati to Geneva, Geneva back. And with an oldest son about ready to enter middle school, was this a community where we think we could settle? So 
We came here, we saw it. I describe Hershey, Pennsylvania for Cincinnati folks. It's a little like you pluck blue ash out Cincinnati and set it down in the middle of central Pennsylvania. And that's sort of the, the area that we moved to. So we're like, okay, we think we can do this. And that's been eight years and we've been happy with it. Oh, that's fantastic. As, as someone who grew up in Mason, Ohio, just next to Blue Ash, that is a fantastic metaphor. I feel like I completely <laughs> understand. I feel like I really know Hershey, Pennsylvania now. And so it's fascinating. You, you talked about kind of the family perspective of making that decision. And so what was the family's reaction to that move? How did the kids react? Were they excited because they're like, wait, does this mean we get more chocolate now instead of yeah. toilet paper? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was interesting because for my wife, my wife is actually a pediatrician and she had been going through her career, raising kids. And to be honest, the medical field wasn't, and she, even as a pediatrician, it really wasn't going well, meshing sort of her professional career growth with also family and everything along those lines. And medicine was going through this transition. It used to be, you don't your own practice. Now you're going to work because you know, she was going to be a cog in a wheel. So when we made the move, she's like, I'm going to try to just stay at home if we go do this. And so we're like, okay, Let's do that standpoint. And then with my kid, so my oldest kid, again, was in fourth grade. When I got invited for the look back interview, I said, can I bring my 10-year-old son? Because he's going to be the voice of the family. And the company, of course, was really smart because when I got here, they said, oh, here's some free tickets. Take him to Hershey Park, which is a big amusement park here. And they had a big bag of candy. And so they were like, I mean, in a way, I like walked right into it because he's like, yeah, I want to move here. So, so yeah, so we really made it a total family decision at that point. And I think that's what made, well, when we finally decided to take the opportunity and move, it made it an easier decision. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Having candy and an amusement park to help get the oh, yeah kids on board. Probably helpful in that that onboarding process. And so I'm curious because that's a very thoughtful kind of approach to making that decision, bringing not only your significant other in, but also the kids in as well. And now as a manager of other people, as a leader within the organization, how do you coach the people who you either mentor or that report to you, et cetera, how do you coach them on finding their own version of whatever work-life balance or integration is in today's environment? No, it's a great question. And what I end up doing, and someone did for me a long time ago at PNG, as I said, honestly, you're at that point, you got to be honest with yourself and sit down and say, what is most, what is truly most important to you and your family? And it's a judgment-free zone. So as I said, if someone says, Charlie, title is very important to me. Don't ask me why, but I need a big title that impresses people. Okay, well, understand if the company you're going to work for hands out big titles. We all know that the CMO at one company is an associate marketing director at another one. Everybody knows that after a while. Or if it's like, I got to get paid a boatload of money, or I really want to go work overseas, or I really want to go, you really have to decide what is that thing that's going to be the most important thing for you, then what becomes secondary after that, and then start to make decisions based on that. And it does take that sort of personal introspection to say, at this point in my life, what is truly important to me? And I'll get input from other people, but I can't worry about what other people think about my decisions because I'm making them for me and my family and my life and not to please other people. Wow. I really like that focus on the judgment-free zone, right? That it is, it's, it's going to be different for each person. There's no judgment if it is title or time with family or money or et cetera. It's, it's just knowing what you connect with, which I think is a really great distinction when you're thinking about that kind of work-life focus. And so I know one of the areas of interest in your career, one of the things you're proud of is you've worked 
pretty directly in 25 different countries. You were a recipient <laughs> of the Internationalist of the Year in 2015. And so what's been your, why have you been so focused at such a global level? Was it, you know, you growing up in a small town, Newburgh, Indiana, and you're like, the world is a little bit bigger than just Indiana. So I want to see all of it or why a focus on that, that global nature? I ended up having an uncle that worked for the U.S. State Department and what's called USAID. And so they had kids my age. So my cousins grew up where I grew up in this small town in Indiana, they were growing up in all these different countries in Africa and one ended up in Pakistan even at the end. And I had the chance in sixth grade to go visit them in in Nairobi, Kenya. And that opened my eyes and I said, I want to travel the world. So part of joining PNG was behind that. And so there's a certain part, actually, when it came time to going for an expat, that was when that I had to have that discussion with my boss at P&G who said, is that the most important thing to you above everything else with your next role is that it's somewhere outside the U.S.? And I had to sit back and say, yes. And it was like, it didn't matter what country, it didn't matter what brand, it didn't matter what category. Obviously, I had preferences, but that's what enabled at P&G to sort of work that system and say, here's an opportunity for you to go, you know, find this position in Geneva and worked out. And so, yeah. So, I mean, it was crazy because I was doing all that travel while the kids were young and everything else was like that. At this point, I'm honestly, while I still have that interest, that's less important to me to go do that because now, I mean, I just, my oldest son, I just dropped him off at college. So having, right. So right now the, the emphasis is a little bit different because this is, we're getting towards the end of our time as a whole family. And I want to be able to have time to do that with them. Well, and I think that speaks to kind of how it's okay for, as an individual for those interests to change and that they will, that if initially in the first part of your career is all about either international or big salary, et cetera, as you get a little bit older, it might shift to more of family time or more being in a certain location that you want to be. And so from that global perspective, because obviously we live in a very global world and, and certainly with kind of everything that's going on right now with virtual meetings and things like that, it's almost more global in a sense. And so anything that you've kind of learned about how to adapt or work in a global environment with different cultures and challenges that that brings? Yeah. I mean, you have to stop, listen, and learn. You have to understand other people's perspective and understand that they grew up very differently from how you did. And that shapes how they act and how they think. And it doesn't mean one or writer is right or wrong. This is where the power of diversity comes in and how you can start to adapt yourself. Personally, I think working with people from other backgrounds and other cultures pushes you to really look at how you operate and challenges you can be in the P&G days. How you were successful in the office in Cincinnati was different from how to be successful in the office in, in Geneva. And even in Geneva, there were different parts of the world were represented there. So you really had to understand the space that you were working in and understand how to be effective. I mean, I would go in my day, I'd have a call in the morning with, with Pakistan, a call over noon with Russia, and a call in the afternoon with the U.S. And it's like, work, those are three very different work cultures that you had to adapt to to be successful overall. Yeah, that, that adaptation, I think, seems to be key in it. And now a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to alumni entrepreneur Amit Macker, co-founder of Peanut Butter and Imagination, an independent creative agency that actually solves business problems with ideas that inspire action. So Amit, I got to ask, how'd you go from managing massive brands to launching your own creative shop? It's kind of funny, Roman. When you grow up in brand management, no doubt the best part of the job is managing advertising. Sure, IRI polls and sales data, that's fun and all, but the true fun is managing advertising. But as you grow up, in the food chain, you quickly turn from joy to frustration 
And that really centers around what's going on with the agency model. Look, we've been hearing and seeing the pitfalls of the big agency model for quite some time. Overhead, cost, client TLC, clients having to answer the agency, so on and so forth. And as much as medium to large size brands are frustrated with the big agency model, there's a strong sense of security in sticking with them. Sure, you can do one-off test and learn projects for some challenger brands in your portfolio to check a box, but why take on the risk for bigger brands in your portfolio? The issue is the demand for an increase in quantity and quality of content with a decrease in turnaround time and cost is needed now more than ever. And the big agency infrastructure is simply not well suited to deliver against the ever-changing marketplace. So, so how do brand marketers even solve for this? Well, the agency marketplace has responded with an exponential increase in the opposite, the small agency. You have so many small agencies popping up left and right. The challenge that I experience on the client side is that you can truly feel why and where the small agencies are small. On one end of the small agency landscape, you have production companies. The challenge is their core competency is mainly producing the thing with a little bit of creativity sprinkled in. The role of strategy, account, project management, business acumen, so on and so forth, all gets put on the shoulders of the brand team. But hey, they can make the widget for cheap, so you're lured in. Yeah, but there's only so many hours in a day, so that might work for a quick project or two, but it just doesn't seem like long-term sustainable. You're right. And on the other end of the small agency spectrum are small shops started by ex-big agency folk, often started by amazingly talented creatives and strategists. The work can often be great, but I've found that the process can be challenging. Two main areas are one, ego. Oftentimes, big agency ego carries over as folks start their own shop. And two, you still need to work with a plethora of vendors to bring ideas to life. So you're reintroducing time and money. Yeah, production can be really complicated. So how do you thread that needle? I firmly have believed that there needed to be a model in the middle of the big and small world I just described. That's why we founded our agency, Peanut Butter and Imagination. We believe in a model where the prioritization of business and communication problems that a client's actually trying to solve should always be on the forefront. A model where clients hear yes more than they hear no. A model that moves at the speed of the client's business, not the agency's business. And a model that's super responsible with budgets, treating every brand dollar's precious A&P. With all major capabilities, strategy, creative, production, post, and more, all under one roof. A model that understands that share of shelf does not mean how many agency awards it can hold. In short, we have a model that delivers against the simple notion that brands deserve better. So how long have you guys been doing this? You know, we've had a really fortunate start. We're starting our third full year, and in that short time, we have amazing clients like Crayola. We handle all of their experiential and tentpole activations. For Domino's, we're their U.S. Hispanic AOR by project, and same for Canada. And for Kind Snacks, we've done a ton of their strategy, creative, and production efforts. And sure, we've worked with a, an amazing roster of big brands, but we love challenger brands alike. We love working with upstart brands, helping them tap into our CPG experience to hit the ground running. So where can people find out more about Peanut Butter and Imagination? You can learn a lot more on our website at pbandi.shop. And sure, you can reach out and contact us to talk about a specific project. But what we really would love to do is understand why are you even thinking about briefing an agency? Tap into our experience so we can help you think through your business problems and really help you navigate the, navigate the crazy state of the current agency world. Awesome. Well, best of luck, Amit, and thanks for joining. Appreciate it, Roman. Thanks a lot. And now back to the show. So it sounds like, so from what we've talked about, there's there's been a lot of 
successes, right? You wanted to move internationally and were able to find that role. You have this kind of opportunity with, with Hershey's and you've been enjoying it, et cetera. But we also know that a lot of times we hear people's highlights reels without knowing kind of the things that didn't quite work. And so we get mired in our own kind of when something doesn't go right the way that we think it did, we'd look at everyone else like, oh, but we're doing something wrong. Everyone else is perfect, it seems like. So I'm curious, have there been times in your career and can you think of a specific time where something didn't quite work out the way you expect it to or that you really had to kind of take something and learn from a failure or mistake? Yeah, I mean, that's where, and it can either be something that you were pursuing a path and it just didn't work out like you thought it would, or the external environment changes on you and you have to adjust. I mean, in the early days of doing some of the digital work, we were trying a lot of things that probably were too early for their time. I remember one project we were working on where it was like an online beauty advisor where people could call this person up and give some information and they would make very specific recommendations, sort of high, highly personalized recommendations for people or, and shoot, I think I could talk about this now. We even met with the company 23andMe and like, could your DNA tell people like what the right skincare products you could have to be? I mean, imagine the kind of business unlock that would come out of that. But really, that's really cool and start pursuing that, but realizing that the organization and the business and the model isn't ready for that at that particular time. So I was sort of focusing on some of that. And then e-commerce started to blow up and it said, okay, we need to make this pivot. It's still in digital, but Amazon just bought Quidzy and they're now selling Pampers online and killing it. We've got to go figure out this e-commerce space for the whole rest of the company. So yeah, you can't put your, what I found is you can't put your self-worth in the individual products or the brands or the, or the things that you've done so far, so much so that your identity's tied into it. And then you can't make the pivot later on. Oh, yeah. I like that focus. And that's fascinating. So you basically came up with like Instagram influencers before Instagram was a thing. Yeah. I mean, looking back now, I was like, oh my gosh, this is just 10 years too early. The the, the, The consumer behavior and the technology wasn't, I mean, still in beauty, people are trying to customize beauty for everyone and it still isn't all the way there. Even now, like e-commerce and beauty is easy. And it wasn't at that time. So yeah, nothing's new, but everything's new. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of which, this is something that I know you're at the forefront of with a lot of your work in Hershey's. And so I wanted to ask a little bit about how you identify the opportunity in what's coming up. So for example, I know Hershey's has done some great work with Twitch and esports and all that. How do you handle the new things? How do you parse to say, okay, this is actually a good fit for us versus TikTok thing, but is that a thing that we should actually be involved with or not? I don't know. So how do you manage all of the what is new and deciding what works or wouldn't work? It's funny. That's probably where I rely on my PNG experience the most. The first place that I start with with all of this is, is our consumer there? Now, in Hershey's case, and we have this big portfolio of brands, we eventually reach almost everybody in the U.S. You know, <laughs> at some point in the year. So from that standpoint, if you get the right brand, someone's there. But then it looks to say, okay, this is kind of a TikTok's a cool new thing. Use that example. But how is it going to help us drive commercial success? And the esports thing, how that came up was a very simple media question. There's a younger set of consumers, especially males. They're not watching linear TV anymore. Some of them participate in social media, but not all of them. Where the heck are they? And that's where we found them and went down that path. And so that's what you start to do. But what I find you also can't, you can't get caught up in this is the cool thing right now. And I think a lot of people sort of maybe five to 10 or 
so years in the, in the company, they really want to be seen as the digital experts and they're the digital experts if they're on the cool platforms and they're driving all of that. Where I've seen some people drive their career off the rails is they're just going after the cool, but they never tie it back to, and this is how you help the company make money on this platform. <laughs> and that's what the senior leaders, that's the real type of sort of innovation and, and new thing that I know I look for, that I know our senior leaders at Hershey look for. It's not that, hey, look at it as we're cool, we're on TikTok. It's like, how is TikTok helping us to reach people in a way? And how do you make your communication effective? So you get to the creative side. Creative on TikTok is different from Instagram. So that's a whole place where someone could, okay, my special space is I'm going to figure out how to have the old world of effective creative on this new platform. And that's going to help drive business results, commercial success from that standpoint and whatever we need to do. Yeah, I like that. So it's not just about knowing of the cool new thing, but tying it back to the business strategy and needs of the business. Yeah. When I got into digital, I found there were people who were sort of digital evangelists and they were highly thought of because they knew about the latest things. They were the first one to have an Apple watch and people sort of put their faith and belief in these people. But I wanted to make the transition to the person who understood digital and how to apply it for commercial success. And what I've seen over time is more the people who figure out how to drive commercial success with what's changing in the world are the ones who are building and sustaining their careers versus the digital evangelists. That applied piece, I like that. And so, and maybe it's because of Twitch and some of the spaces, or I don't know if it's because of the brand, but a little while back, you posted on LinkedIn that you're having more fun and impact than at any other time in your career. And so I'm curious, what's working so well? What's bringing the fun and the impact that you're having? The first thing is, is I work for a company that's very supportive of what I do. They believe even media. They believe in the power of media to drive the business. And so it's all the way up to our CEO and even the board of directors and, and they're supportive of what we're doing. But there's also this constant challenge of the media landscape just constantly changes. And so how do you sustain that success over time? How do you pivot? And every year I'm like, next year is going to be crazier than the year before. And I'm like, okay, am I just saying that because you're supposed to say it? And then COVID hits. And it's like, oh my gosh, the agility that we've had to develop as a traditional CPG company when it comes to media was unbelievable because COVID hit right during the Easter season, which is one of our two biggest seasons with like four weeks to go. And so we were, and we we're sponsors in the NCAA tournament and that all went away. So kind of what makes it fun is you keep getting these sort of pressure built situations where you've got got to take everything you've done in your career to make the right decision to go forward. And how do you not only do that, but then change the organization to be able to adapt to the new environment that you're in? So to me, that's what sort of makes it exciting to get up every day and do it versus, oh, well, here's the playbook for how to do this that we've developed over the last 10 years and just don't screw up the playbook. That doesn't excite me. Yeah. And you speak of and you bring up kind of COVID and the shift. So certainly there's the business shift that has happened because of it. And then there's also the kind of how you work shift that has happened. And so I'm curious for you, how have you helped to coach others and even for yourself manage a new working from home environment where you have the kids kind of probably nearby a lot more often and you don't have kind of the sereneness of an office for per se. So what, what tips have you found that have been effective in a work from home environment? I mean, as a leader of a team, what I found is you have to create an environment either in the team setting or individually where people can share the challenges that they're facing. And it could be as big as I'm caring for a family member who's affected by COVID to 
I've learned that my desk chair is very uncomfortable and you can't, both of those are very important to those for those people and figure out how to work solutions so that people can feel like they're focusing on what's more important. They still feel like they're contributing in the work environment to move things forward there, but yet they can take care of the craziness around them and realize that situations change. I mean, where we're recording this is right before people go back to school and and the school situations keep changing. So it's like, so we said to our team, it's like, we have to reduce the number of priorities we're working on, only working on the things that are most important so that if people have all of a sudden their school situation changes and they've got to go spend more time with their kids teaching online or just taking them back and forth to school, they're not getting bombarded with six new priorities that they feel like they can't do either part of their life right. Yeah, that reduction of business priorities with a focus on people knowing that there's going to be a lot of priorities in their life based on the environment that is changing, I think is really impactful, really powerful, and very helpful from an organization standpoint to be able to help the people that are actually working for you. So I think that's fantastic. And and I think there's also, as you mentioned, kind of fun and that sense you and I were talking before we started and hit record and I asked you about a little bit of your background. And so I'd love to share what's your daughter's strategy for helping add a little bit of humor into even your own kind of remote meetings. Yeah. So I ended up when we went to COVID, we have a room that's sort of a craft room and an office, but now it's become more of an office, but I didn't want to take say, oh, you got to take out all the, the, she's interested in arts and she's a junior in high school. She's going to go pursue graphic design. I didn't want her to lose that. So in my, the background, there's a desk where she does a lot of her work. Some of her art is there and she started to put little Easter eggs back there. So she started off by changing out different stuffed animals. And now there's actually one of the stuffed animals, a bear is in the process of doing a painting. And every couple of days, the painting advances a little bit. She's obviously really doing it, but it's kind of fun for the team because it's kind of hides over my shoulder. Sometimes I block it and and, in a team meeting, people are like, oh, Charlie, the bear painted more. Oh, that's cool. Can I see it? And it just kind of adds another fun element. It makes... I think everyone feel more human, that no one has the perfect work from home setting, no matter what your Zoom background looks like. And I think that makes everyone feel like, yeah, it's okay if my little two-year-old walks up in the middle of a team meeting, sits on my lap and starts asking me if I want to eat the milkshake that they made, which is really just a play thing. I mean, it's, I think it's humanized everyone so much more. Well, there's a great authenticity to that, right? As a leader of a team, you could kind of craft the, try it, like you said, try to craft the perfect background, but there's a great authenticity to you being like, no, this was a craft room. You don't want to take that from your family. And it, and like you said, it creates this kind of new excitement for your team to see, okay, who's painting today, which animal or toy, or how has the painting itself progressed? And so I imagine there's a lot that you're, you're sharing by your actions, right? You're making it okay for other people by how you're, you're behaving to do the same thing. And that authenticity, that vulnerability seems to be very impactful. Yeah. And, and that's what it is. I think the biggest thing of all of this, is you have to make it no matter the situation is give people some of the sense that at least in part of their life, things are going to be okay. And they've got a leader at the company who is thinking about those things and is doing everything they can within their power. And you can't control everything, right? So everyone's like, when are we going to go back to work? I have no idea. I mean, sometimes that's what I've said earlier in the crisis. When are we going to go back to work? I have no idea, but let me tell you what I'm seeing. And 
we have reports that I get about the state of the COVID crisis and what it means from the business. And I just forward them on to my team. So they're seeing all the data that's available because there's so much information sort of out there that you can get in different places. And it's like, this is at least what I'm making my decisions on for our team and what the company is making its decisions on. And I think you need to see it. Yeah, that's a really great strategy. And so as we start to wrap up, we have a couple of rapid fire questions for you. And now, of course, you're at Hershey. So then I have to ask kind of what's your favorite candy? The Reese's Take Five. That's one of the best candy bars ever made that nobody knows about. Go try one. Yeah, okay. All right. The Take Five. <laughs> I consider myself a little bit of a candy connoisseur, and I've heard of a Take Five. I didn't know that there's a Reese's version of that. We just moved it under Reese's to help people learn about it. Yeah. Oh, so okay. it's the original Take Five bar. It's just a sub because it had Reese's peanut butter to begin with it. But yeah. Oh, okay. I don't think I, I realized. And out of curious, has Reese, Hershey's done the research of why do some of us say Reese's pieces? <laughs> it's a regional thing. I don't know okay. why, but I just know it's a regional thing. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Because I'd say that and people just kind of look at me and give me like, what did you just say? What yeah. name? Okay. So we've also talked a little bit about social media. What social media do you or someone that you know spend maybe a little bit too much time on? Twitter, a little bit of LinkedIn. Now for work, TikTok. <laughs> I like that you can say that, that you can get away with saying it's for work. I can get away with saying it's for work, yes. But it does, I mean, it sucks you in and I understand why. Yeah, okay. What's your, and maybe it's TikTok, but what's your form of kind of either catharsis or stepping away from work? Is it social media? Is it books, movies, podcasts, TV shows, something else? It's actually gaming, but not Fortnite or Call of Duty or things like that. I like strategy games. You know, you think like old school risk or civilization or things like that, where to do that. It's just, it's still thinking and engages the mind, but it's mindless. Okay. The gaming, that's a first for this podcast. We haven't heard Mm -hmm. gaming before, but I like it. I think it's a great way to relieve some stress. But at the same time, like you said, maybe it's the engineers in us of like, you're still kind of solving problems. And we're like, yes, this is stress relief is going into civilization and trying to create one. So if you had a podcast, if you could do an interview with one person, who would it be? Oh my gosh. Elon Musk. And I would really like to try to get into, is this really who he is or is he just putting on an act? Ah, yeah. Interesting. I don't know if I'd be successful in that, but (laughs) it's kind of curious what he's building or someone like a Jeff Bezos or someone or Mark Zuckerberg being in media is like, do you really comprehend what your platform is doing? (laughs) This thing that you've built. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Okay. And so to wrap up, because it's been fantastic, kind of full of great insights and wisdom But I'm curious if you have any kind of one last final message or challenge that you would give to the next generation of leaders. I guess the biggest thing I'd say is you start to figure out through your life what's important to you. It's okay for it to change and it's okay for it to be different from other people because it's your life to live. It's what's going to make you happy in what you do. I think a lot, especially P&G alums, it's like you you, you get hired into P&G because you want to be the CEO of P&G someday. You don't have to be. And you don't have to compare yourself to your ABM classmates and everyone else from a measure of success. Determine what success is for you and pursue that and make it the best sort of professional and personal life that you can. A great, great piece of advice for the next generation and every generation of leaders. Well, Charlie, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Learnings with Leaders podcast. It's been my pleasure. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. 
Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. The first thing is, is we can't lose sight of purpose and values. To me, this is still a purposeful, value-centered world. I mean, that is what makes us successful. So you got to start there. Then second, you've got to care for people. What happens in a crisis is people draw up the drawbridges of their castle. They shut the windows and they hope the thing goes away. And you can't do that. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.